The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We are going to be in Mark chapter 12 this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open up there. We'll begin at verse 13. But by way of introduction, I'd like to sort of orient us once again as to where we are at in the story of Jesus and the significance of this moment. Jesus is in Jerusalem on Passover. Now, Passover, of course, is the celebration of the Israelites' freedom from slavery in Egypt. It it commemorates the final plague that occurred in Egypt where where God sent one last plague upon the Egyptians. And in this final plague, God said that he would pass through the land of Egypt and he would take the life of the firstborn of every household. And in Exodus 12, Moses gave the requirements to the descendants of Abraham of how they could escape this judgment. This judgment that God was bringing upon the land of Egypt, their captors. In Exodus 12, verse 3, God says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Then if you skip down to verses 5 and 6 in Exodus 12, it says this, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when this whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now, the question is, why did they have to keep the lamb for four days? They kept it from the 10th to the 14th of the month. The answer is really twofold. It's One, for inspection. And the other, number two, for affection. By bringing the lamb into the household to live for four days, the family would be forced to acknowledge the value of the lamb. It is in their midst with a death sentence upon it. And that death sentence that sits upon this lamb is actually life for the family. This lamb is the means by which they will escape the judgment of God. And they're to sit with the lamb and think about that reality. For four days, the lamb is taken into their household and they live in the presence of the lamb that has a death sentence over the top of it. The lamb will become the means by which your family will be spared the judgment of God. And by having the lamb sleep in the house, eat in the house, the house becomes this place where there is a living reminder that their lamb is precious to them. But the second reason is not only for affection, but also for inspection. For four days, you live with the lamb in your presence. And during that time, you could observe if it had any flaws or if it had any imperfections. And remember, it's very important that the lamb be without blemish. Why? 
Because when the lamb is slain and the blood is placed upon the doorpost, if it's a lamb with a blemish, the blood is invalid. It doesn't count. And you are still under the judgment of God in that moment. And so you want to observe this lamb, make sure that there's nothing wrong with it. It doesn't behave strangely, that it doesn't have any spots or blemishes, that no teeth are broken, that it's not lame in some way or cross-eyed or whatever, right? You want this lamb to be perfect, to be without blemish. You're betting your children's lives on the worthiness of the lamb. It had to be the perfect lamb. Or every firstborn in the household would lose their life. So the inspection of the lamb for four days was important. To be around it. To have it in your living room. To let your kids pet it. The affection towards the lamb was important so that you knew the meaning of this sacrifice and the value of the lamb. Well, here today in our passage... Jesus is in Jerusalem as the Lamb of God who is about to be offered to deliver his people from bondage once again. Having arrived in Jerusalem on the 10th of the month, Jesus will now remain for four days in Jerusalem before being arrested, tried, and slain. And during this time, Jesus will be inspected by representatives of each of the dominant religious political parties of his time. And they are looking for flaws. They're looking for some imperfection in Jesus. They're going to try and break him down so they can demonstrate that he's, he's not worthy to be called Messiah. That he's not worthy to be the king of Israel. They're looking for a way to discredit his worthiness. And so they come. They come with their best questions to try and trip him up. And we're going to look at today how Jesus handles this, how he does in the face of this inspection. Now, our outline for today is pretty simple. Now, we can break our passage really into two categories. Uh, in verses 13 to 34, there are three questions for Jesus. Three questions for Jesus. And then in verses 35 to 37, one question from Jesus. Three questions for Jesus. There's a question about taxes in verses 13 to 17. A question about the resurrection, verses 18 to 27. And a question about the law in verses 28 to 34. And then one question from Jesus, which is a question about Messiah and his identity, his nature. So we're going to take a look at each one of these and kind of make comments along the way to hopefully clarify the passage for us so that we can kind of understand what is there. And then we'll circle back around at the end and, and bring application. So let's take a look at the first section here, a question about taxes, verses 13 to 17. Let's read. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach 
the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So the Pharisees and the Herodians come with the first round of questions aimed at Jesus. And the scriptures tell us plainly in verse 13 that they are here to trip him up. They are trying to trap him in his talk. Now the Pharisees were strict keepers of the law. They held to a high view of the sovereignty of God. They believed that God was still working in the affairs of man, that he was directing things for his own purpose. They believed in a literal resurrection of the dead. They believed in a punishment and reward that was waiting in the afterlife. And they believed in the existence of angels and of demons. And the Pharisees were really divided into two camps, even amongst themselves, following two different rabbis' teachings among the, among the Pharisees. Some followed a rabbi named Hillel, and these guys were more liberal, uh, friendly towards Rome. And the Pharisees that came under the teaching of the other rabbi, a rabbi named Shammai, were more conservative. They had unbending convictions regarding how to keep the law or, and, and how to keep the oral traditions because they also believed in the oral traditions that followed the law, uh, which made the basis of the Mishnah and, uh, and the Talmud as a whole. Uh, and so the Pharisees came on, that came under the teaching of, of uh, Shammai were conservative. And this group was more hostile towards the Romans and, and hostile in particular towards taxation. Now, what's interesting is you have these, this, the Pharisees here, and then alongside of them you have the Herodians. Now, the Herodians, on the other hand, were largely this political party. They held that the lineage of Herod uh, would garner respect and honor for, for Israel from Rome. They saw Herod as a hero, and some even held him as a messianic figure because he had built a beautiful temple, a place to worship for them. And so they saw Herod as like this messianic figure and his lineage as being the ones who would bring peace with Rome and provide for Israel their uh, national sovereignty. Now, both of these seemingly opposing parties are now joined together as teammates against Jesus. And when they question Jesus about taxes, the Herodians are there because they want to trap Jesus. And, and if he says anything against Rome, they, they can hold Jesus to account for that. They're there to trap him if he says anything against the Roman government or the Roman rule. But the Pharisees will attack if he says something favorable towards Rome. 
And from all outward appearances, Jesus looks like he's trapped because he can't say anything for or against this issue of taxes. Notice the language that they use in verse 14 as they employ flattery in the setup for the trap. They say to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. Right? Trying to draw him into the snare. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, do they truly believe that? No, they don't actually believe that. It is interesting to note something here. And this is something for your broader Bible reading that I think is important to, to take note of. The, the phrase there, the way of God, became the identifier that the early church adopted for itself. When you asked early Christians what teaching they followed, they said they followed the way. The way of God. This was a, a sort of shorthand of what it meant to follow God. The way of God was a, a phrase that was used to, to encompass sort of the, all of the teaching of what it means to please God and to bring honor and glory to him. And the early church adopted that as their moniker. It wasn't until later on in the book of Acts when Christians are being poked fun at that they get called Christians, which means little Christs. And it was a derogatory term. It was, was name-calling in Antioch that brought on the name Christian. But how did the Christians describe themselves? They described themselves as the followers of the way. I love that. It speaks to what they thought about what they were doing. They were, they were, they were following the way of God. Well, these Pharisees and Herodians come. They say, Jesus, we, we know that you're a, a teacher of the way of God and you don't care about anybody's opinion. And this question comes then right afterwards. It's meant to be the checkmate. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or not? Now, the question here gives Jesus no options. Many Jews saw the taxes by Rome not only as a violation of their national sovereignty, but ultimately as idolatry as well. This is because the Roman currency was minted with the imprint of the head of Caesar Augustus. Remember the second commandment in the Ten Commandments? Should have no graven images, right? And so they saw this money with an imprint of Caesar's head, and, and they said, this is a graven image here in our midst, and we're forced to, to buy and sell with it. They really despised that whole idea that, that Rome would impose this currency upon them that forced them to handle graven images. And it wasn't even allowed to be used in the temple, and even more than that, some of the currency that featured the head of Caesar Augustus also had an inscription upon it with the phrase, Theos Sebastos Kaiser. In Greek, that means God Augustus Caesar. So the, the coins themselves called Caesar God. This is 
very, very offensive to the Jews. So if Jesus says, yes, pay taxes, he can be accused of idolatry and alienated from his Jewish audience by the Pharisees. But if he says, no, do not pay taxes, he can be accused by the Herodians of undermining Rome's authority, and he can be arrested. Doesn't this read like some of the political maneuvering we see happening on television? I mean, isn't that what we even saw this last week in the wake of the shootings? Both sides of the argument over the gun debate immediately rushing in, coming in with their agenda because the people are not people. They're, they're, just, they're, they're, they're just symbols of a cause for them. In the aftermath of the school shooting in Texas, both sides of the gun rights issues fire up the propaganda machines. No space is given to the reality of what has actually taken place on the ground. There's no time for grieving the 19 children and the two teachers that lost their lives. Just just push the agenda at all costs on both sides of the equation. That this is all just another opportunity to push our agenda forward. It's all political maneuvering. There's no substantive talk of the kind of evil that makes children targets and victims. People and tragedy are considered mere props to a political agenda. How about this, though? And I know, I know we can get caught up in that as believers. We can become keyboard warriors. I know that. How about instead of jumping in with our agendas, how about instead of blaming and politicizing, we grieve with the families that have lost precious people? How about we, we mourn the presence of evil in our world. Evil that, that makes the most vulnerable among us targets. How about we grieve with the families that have lost precious treasures, children that they nurtured, cared for, husbands, wives, future dreams and plans that have all come crashing down as a result of the loss of life and this evil. When we jump to politicizing first, you know what we do? We make victims twice. First, out of the tragedy that unfolds. Once, in the face of loss, and once in the hands of those that should be comforters by using them as an agenda for whatever thing that we're trying to push. As believers, can I just encourage us? Don't get caught up in the keyboard warrior mentality. Don't get caught to the left or to the right. See the reality of what happens. Grieve. Let your heart soak in what has taken place. And bring your heart before God and begin to pray. Begin to lift up to God intercession for the families that have been affected and for the hurt that has been caused 
within our nation and within these, these communities. Because the reach is so far, isn't it? I mean, kids are going to have to go back to that school. Teachers are going to have to go back. That's the reality of it. This will, this will scar them for life. This will, this will take years and years to recover from. And maybe some may never recover from it. That's the truth. That's the reality. Well, these guys here are caught up in their own political agenda. Jesus is just an object to them. He's something to get around, to maneuver around, to corral, so that they can continue to push their agenda. But Jesus sees through the hypocrisy of his inquisitors. I love how Jesus goes straight at them with the truth. Verse 15, would you just read that with me? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? He just calls it straight up like it is, right there to their faces. Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Jesus doesn't play any games. He speaks the truth. Notice that Jesus doesn't have a coin himself. Did you pick up on that? He's like, somebody, you know, toss me a coin. He doesn't even have one. Guess who has one? The people that are asking questions about the coin. <laughs> they have a question. They have a coin. They're like, well, I got one of those here. Let, let, me, let me give that to you, you know? And so Jesus grabs the coin. He looks at it. And then he asks the question. Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus displays incredible wisdom in asking this. The question highlights the issue that the Pharisees and Herodians are seeking to trap him on. Whose inscription is on the coin? That's the centerpiece of the debate, right? And they say, well, Caesar's. And so they recognize like Jesus is aware of what's going on. He knows what, what we've planned here, what we're trying to trap him in. So they say Caesar's, and then Jesus turns around with the the most incredible answer, and he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Then he adds something, and to God, the things that are God's. The implications here are really clear. Caesar's likeness and image are on the coin. So it's his coin. Give it back to him. That's pretty straightforward logic. Oh, and by the way, whose image do you bear? People, we're standing here. Whose image do you bear? Whose likeness does man bear? And of course they know the answer to that. We're created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And so Jesus says, give to God what is God's. I don't want us to miss the logic of Jesus here. From his perspective, being made in the image of God means that you belong to him. He claims ownership of you. The Pharisees and the Herodians were concerned about how much money the government should take. Jesus is primarily concerned with how much of our lives are owned by God. In his estimate, estimation, 
We bear the image of God, therefore our lives, all of it, in totality, should be given to God. God does not tax his people or take a portion of their lives. There is no segregation in the lives of God's followers. Where God says, this part belongs to me, but this part over here, that's really your territory. You, you get to have all of that all to yourself. No, he says, you bear the image of God. All of you belongs to God. In the mind of Jesus, God gets all of us. There's no separation. And when the crowd hears this, they marvel at Jesus' wisdom. They marvel at his wisdom. They go, man, you are, you're, you're right. <laughs> what, what, what do you say about that? The, the coin's got Caesar's inscription on it. I guess it's his coin. I bear the image of God. I guess I belong to God. I should give to God what is God's. They don't have anything else to say. Then comes the next question. The next test comes from a different group. The Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees rejected the Pharisaic tenet of the oral Torah and created new interpretations based on a literal understanding of verses. They held to a belief in the Pentateuch alone. They didn't follow the teachings of the Mishnah or the Talmud. Uh, they, They didn't believe that those had the same weight as the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, the problem is, though, their beliefs bordered on atheism. The Sadducees, you guys have heard the joke, that's why they were so sad, you see, right? The Sadducees uh, were extremely self-sufficient to the point of denying God's involvement in everyday life. They, they They did not see God as being involved in everyday life. They denied the resurrection of the dead. They denied an afterlife, holding that the soul perished at death, and therefore denying any penalty or reward for this earthly life. They denied the existence of the spiritual world, of angels, of demons. And now they come to Jesus with this question. Let's pick it up in verse 18. The Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher... Moses wrote for us, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. So in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now, the question that the Sadducees bring up concerning uh, the, the law of leveret marriage, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, 5 through 10, might sound a little bit strange to us. Um, these laws sound strange to us because uh, it's foreign to our particular culture. 
But it was a way for them to preserve family lines in a culture where having an heir mattered for a whole host of reasons. Not only were there issues around preserving the family name, but, but children were the ones who were charged with taking care of their aging parents. And so a woman who was once married and bore no children basically received a death sentence. Nobody would be able to take care of her. So that was one of the issues. Additionally, there were issues of property and inheritance that were part of the need to have heirs. Uh, within the same clan or family. And, and for Israelites in particular, they were not allowed to marry outside of the house of Israel. And so keeping things in the family, if you will, was kind of a big deal. Finding a spouse from within your own clan or within your own nationality was an important value. So there was this provision in the law that made it a priority to keep the family name alive when the brother had died. And the law stated that if a brother died, having no children of their own, then the surviving brothers were obligated to take the wife and raise up an heir in the name of the deceased brother. Now, the Sadducees here actually don't believe in the resurrection. And so for them, this question is a way to sort of trap Jesus once again. The Sadducees believed that they had the ultimate question to trip up anyone that believed in the resurrection of the dead. Their, their question is kind of like, maybe you've heard some of these types of questions, like, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Right? Those, it's that kind of question. And it's a dumb question. God can make a rock super big, and if he wants to, he can lift it. He can do whatever he wants. Right? But it's meant as a hypothetical that is designed to get you to admit or make concessions that you do not want to make. And Jesus has been clearly teaching about the resurrection of the dead throughout his ministry. As a matter of fact, he came into Jerusalem with Lazarus after having raised him from the dead. Right? And so these Sadducees come with this question in an effort to trap him. They're trying to disprove one of Jesus' core teachings. And so, again, Jesus comes straight at them with the truth. I love verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Isn't that so John Wayne of Jesus? I just love that. He just comes straight at him. He's like... Isn't this why you're wrong? Because you don't know the scriptures. You don't understand the power of God. <laughs> he, just, he just levels them in that moment. Jesus is telling these experts on the scriptures who claim spiritual su- superiority based on their theological perspective. He's telling them, you're wrong. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. They don't know the scriptures because... The scriptures talk plainly of the resurrection throughout, of life after death, of judgment to come. It's all throughout, both the Old and the New Testament. So they don't, they don't see that. They're, they're just skipping over. They're highlighting with a, a black magic marker all of the passion, portions of scripture and passages that they do not like, that don't fit in with their agenda. He's proving to them 
that what we do in this life matters. He's demonstrating that the resurrection is an important key understanding of why life makes sense in the first place. They don't know the power of God because they see death as an ultimate end of life and that it's not something that can be overcome. So let's settle into the mind of Jesus here a a little bit. Obviously, he holds a a high view of Scripture. He, He believes that the Scriptures teach the truth about God and about life. He believes that knowing the Scriptures will cause you to know the truth. That's the reason that he says to them, if you knew the scriptures, you'd know what the truth is, right? But you don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. So Jesus has a very high view of scripture here. And as a result of that, that's the resource that Jesus goes to, to demonstrate that the Sadducees don't know what it is that they're talking about. And in doing so, Jesus is proving that there is a resurrection of the dead. He's proving that what we do in this life matters to God, and it matters to us in an eternal way. He's saying that man has to live with eternity in view. And his his argument goes like this in in the following verses. He says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read, there it is, referencing the scripture, in the book of Moses, a a passage, a portion of scripture that they would honor and revere? Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, you are quite wrong. So his argument goes like this. Life after the resurrection is not the same as life here and now. You're you're worried about marriage and you're you're asking this question about whose wife will she be in the afterlife? And it's like, man, it's it's not like here. It's different. Okay? Don't, Don't confuse the life that comes after the resurrected life with the life here and now, the temporary life, the mortal life. Mortality will be swallowed up by immortality. It's different. His second point of logic is that God believes in the resurrection. And the evidence of that is when he meets with Moses in the burning bush, he says to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Presently. This is hundreds of years after each of those figures had died. Right? And it's, right now, I am their God. So from God's perspective, he believes in the resurrection because he talks about the dead as though they are alive. So Jesus concludes by saying he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. <laughs> he comes right back around and says it again. You're, you're quite wrong, right? I love, no, like, hey, let's just agree to disagree. He's like, no, you're, I'm sorry, you're wrong about this. You don't believe what is true. Just so blunt, in the truth here. 
So next comes this other question. It's a question from a dominant party of Jesus' day. It comes from a scribe. And the scribes were, a, were the group charged with making copies of the Old Testament scriptures, particularly of the Torah. But they also copied the prophets and, and the Psalms and you know, the, the poetic books as well. They could create legal documents. They could create marriage contracts, um, you know, divorce, a, a writing of divorce, uh, create wills, mortgages. Every village really had a scribe. Uh, they were known for being experts on Scripture and were often at the center of debates over the meaning of different portions of Scripture because they were so used to handling it, copying it. They could read, they could write. They were the educated of, uh, that, of the society of that time. And so in, in verse 28, a scribe comes with a question to Jesus. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And they see everybody arguing about Jesus. And that he answered them well. And he asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? So, Jesus, you seem to be an expert on the law, on the scriptures. You say, the reason that these guys don't understand things is because they don't understand the scriptures. Well, I've got a question about the scriptures for you, Jesus. Which commandment is the greatest commandment of all? Now, there are 613 mitzvot, which is the Hebrew word for commandment. 613 commandments in the law. And the scribe is asking Jesus to pick the one that is most important. Now, Jesus responds in verse 29 by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, which is often called the Great Shema. And the reason it's called the Great Shema is that the word Shema is the Hebrew word for hear or listen. And it is the first word that is used in those verses from Deuteronomy 6. Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So that's why it gets called the Great Shema, because it was hear, Shema, O Israel. Now, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Let's read it here in verse 29. The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now I want us... I want us to settle into this for just a minute. We'll, we'll take just a few minutes to kind of go through this. This will be slightly technical, maybe a little bit more technical than what we're, we're used to. But I, I think I want us to, to let the, the, the scriptures kind of rise up a little bit and, and show us what God intends through the great Shema. We don't catch the fullness of the meaning of the great Shema in the English translation. So I want us to take a few moments to, uh, to wade into some of the original language because it paints an incredible picture for us to consider what Jesus is saying. So I want us to look at, at some Hebrew words, the Hebrew words for love, for heart, for soul, and for strength. 
When Jesus responds here with the Shema, there was an understanding of what the Shema was saying that would be common or understandable to those who speak the language. We don't, and so it takes a little bit more work on our part to, to really see with clarity what is being said there. The first word for us to consider is the word love from Deuteronomy 6. Love. The Hebrew word for love is ahava, and it means affection and care. So an example of how this gets used, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, and because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence and by his great power. Here, God says that he ahavad your fathers and chose them. So it's a love that was not based upon something that the Israelites were bringing to the table. God chose. It's a sovereign love. It is a love of choice. God's love originates from his own character. It's not because of something the Israelites bring to the table. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, God says through the prophet Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. An ahava that lasts forever. That's the kind of love that I have for you. So it's, it's eternal. Often in the Bible, this type of ahava is, is not a duty or an obligation, but it's, a, it's actually a feeling. It's compared with the love of a parent or a spouse. But not only that, it's not, it's not just a feeling, but it's also an action. For instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 37, and because he ahavad, he loved you. Uh, because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence and by his great power. So because of love, God took action. He delivered you. That's the idea. So this love is not passive. And it's not a duty. It's an affection. It's not based upon the worth or the value of the other person. It's based upon the sovereign gift to give. It's that kind of love, right? This ahava. And in the Shema, the call to love is both a call to feelings of affection and also action, actions that demonstrate or back up the kind of feelings that you have. As a matter of fact, this is something that the, the same word ahava gets used in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, to demonstrate that the love that God has given us, we use that to love others. Okay? That that kind of ahava is the ahava we give to others. It becomes an example for us, for how to love, for what love looks like. The second word that I want us to look at is heart. Heart. The word in Hebrew is levav, or sometimes the shortened form, shortened form uh, lev. Sometimes it literally means an organ, like in Second in First Samuel chapter twenty-five, verse thirty-seven. There's a guy named Nabal who has a heart attack. His heart melted within him. He dies. Right. So it's a, the literal organ, but it's also in the Hebrew mind is the seat of thinking of reasoning, of wisdom, 
of emotions, of affections, of desires, all of that comes from the heart of a man. It is the center of all human existence. And this is why we're told in Proverbs to protect the heart, right? For out of it flow all the issues of life. Jeremiah would go on to say in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart was a place of brokenness and wickedness above all things. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Moses said that the Israelites needed to have their hearts circumcised, which is a really interesting picture, right? A cutting away of, of the flesh, that that needed to take place in their hearts. Ezekiel, the prophet, hoped for a day when Israel would be gifted a heart of flesh in place of the heart of stone. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. So the, the, the heart was not just, you know, you know like the, the thing that beats inside of you. It, it, from the Hebrew perspective, it was the, the seat of desire, the seat of emotion. It was the place where you felt things the deepest. It was the core of you. So love the Lord your God with the core of you, the heart. Your mind, your will, your emotions, every part of you is wrapped up in Ahava'in, God, and loving him. The next word I want to look at is soul. Soul, the Hebrew word there is nafesh. It literally means throat. Now, I, I, I think it's helpful here to understand a difference between a Greek perspective of the human makeup and a Hebrew perspective of the human makeup. Plato taught that the soul was sort of this ghostly, inanimate part of you that was the, the real you, and that one day your body would die and your soul would depart and be separated from your body. Okay? It, it's a, a dualist uh, perspective here that there, you have two parts but that is not the understanding of traditional Hebrew culture rather the idea of the soul was not this inanimate part of you but it was the whole of you nefesh is your throat and it kind of makes sense if you think about it like your throat is where like you need food it's where air moves in and out it's where life is right and so from their perspective, like to, to have your throat blocked is a bad thing. You lose the whole of you when your throat no longer works, right? So it's translated throat uh, in some passages, but sometimes is used to refer to the whole of the person in places like Genesis 46, 15, or Numbers 31, 19, or Deuteronomy 24, 7. It was used to refer to the whole of the person. And nefesh is, is also not only the whole of a person, but it's all of me. It's my entire being. Remember Psalm, or excuse me, uh, Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. I have found the one whom my soul loves. My all of me, my entire being is devoted to the one whom I love. 
right? So it's not just this inanimate part of you, it's, it's the whole of you. And so, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, the core of you, your nafesh, the all of you, right? And then with your strength. Now, interesting here in Jesus' uh, wording here, he adds mind, and that's likely because he was speaking in Aramaic, and didn't have, he needed to resource another word to be able to give the whole meaning of soul there, which included, or excuse me, heart there, which included the mind as well. So he adds mind in this passage as well. But I want to focus on the last word, which is strength. The word strength is meod. It occurs over 300 times in the scriptures. Most times it doesn't get translated as strength. It is most often translated as very much. It's an adverb. It intensifies the meaning of whatever came before or after it. So some examples would be like in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. God is creating each day, and each day he looks over what he makes, and he says, oh, it's good. But on the last day of creation, on the sixth day of creation, he looks over what he has made, and he says, behold, it is miod good. It is very good. Or Genesis Chapter 7, verse 18, that describes the flood that was meod, powerful. Or Genesis chapter 4, verse 5, with the story of Cain and Abel, where, where Cain was meod, angry, very angry with his brother. And it's also used in positive ways, too, to increase happiness. Very happy, like 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 15. So to make something very intense... In, in Hebrew, a lot of times what you'll do is repeat a word. So if you really want to make it super intense, then you could say something is meod, meod, right? And a lot of times in Hebrew, you'll see that it's like very, very important, right? Very, very emphasized. Now, the Greek translation of the word meod is dunamis. You guys recognize that word? Dunamis means Power, it's, all, it's used to describe the, the power of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, the dunamis. So oftentimes it was translated, meod was translated in, uh, to the Greek word dunamis uh, in, in, uh, when in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So in the Shema, the word meod is a call to love God with all of your muchness, with all of your veriness, with your with sort of exponential love, okay? So now, let, let, let's put all of this together. I know some of you already are like, oh, I'm so tuned out. This is so boring to me. Come back to me for just a brief moment. I want to pull it all together for you. To understand what Jesus is saying here, we got to string it all together. The greatest commandment then is to love or have affection, ahava, and action. We are to love God in that way with all of our heart, that is our thinking, our reasoning, our wisdom, our emotions, our desires, with all of your soul, the whole being of you, all of your existence, with all of your strength, with all of your very muchness. 
Right? He's saying, he's saying, take all of this and, and, and make it exponential. Love him with all of that and so much more and let it keep increasing and let it get bigger. That's the kind of love that you're to have for God. And Jesus says, that's the greatest command. That's what it looks like to obey the law. And then he says the second one is, is just like it. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. So stepping once again into the mind of Jesus, he says the most important thing that God wants for mankind, the whole point of the commandments, the whole point of the law, all those 613 mitzvot, the point of all of that is that with an ever-increasing capacity that you might be giving to God all of your love with every part of you, the core of you and every fiber of your being, and that that would be increasing in massive, massive ways throughout life. And that you love your neighbor as yourself. To love one another and to love God in this, these ways. Jesus says, if you do those things, you're fulfilling what the law intended for you to do. Now, the scribe agrees in verse 32. The scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You, you've truly said he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, all the understanding, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more then all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He says, this is, this is more valuable worship to God than even sacrifices. Now, Jesus hears this from the scribe, and look at how he responds. He said to him, Jesus, and when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So here's, here's what happens. Jesus hears the response of the scribe. He goes, man, you are really close to getting it. Like you, you get the whole point of the law. You get the point of all the 613 commands. You understand it. Loving, loving in an ever-increasing way God and surrendering all of your life to him. Just like the image picture from before with the coin. All of you given to God. And that that's supposed to be increasing throughout your life. And the same is supposed to be happening. Like you are really close to figuring this thing out. What is he missing? The only thing he's missing is faith in God's Messiah. That's the only thing he's lacking. Faith in the king of the kingdom. After answering this question, Jesus' skeptics are silenced. No one dared to ask him any more questions. And so Jesus turns the table them on them in a bit and says, uh, it's my turn to ask you questions. So here's, here's the question that comes from Jesus. And, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So G Jesus poses this question. He says, okay, you guys have asked me questions. Nobody has any more questions for me. How do I do in the inspection? Seems like I did okay. I got a question for you now. This Messiah figure, the one that the scriptures talk about, the one that David describes in Psalm 110, how is it that the scribes say that he is the son of David? When David 
calls the Messiah his Lord. What's that say about the Messiah then? Right? Take note of the fact that Jesus acknowledges, first of all, that David wrote Psalm 110, but that it was not David alone that wrote it. Notice what it says there. David himself in the Holy Spirit. When he was writing scripture, he was being directed by the Holy Spirit. He wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And again, Jesus is tipping his hand and showing his theology here. He believes that the scriptures were written through man by God. And so he resources them as the foundation of truth. And then, ultimately, his logic goes like this. When David wrote Psalm 110 about the coming Messiah, he calls his offspring, the one that would come from him, his Lord. What then does that say about the identity of the Messiah? It's a rhetorical question, but the implication is this. It would say that the Messiah is greater than David by David's own admission. David is now saying that he is subservient to the king Messiah and to his kingdom. He sees the Messiah and his rule as greater than himself and his own rule. Secondly, it points to the divine, divine authority of the Messiah and the fact that, the, that his kingdom is greater or more glorious than David's. And so Jesus closes this time of inspection by forcing the crowd to think about the true identity of the Messiah and the true nature of his kingdom. It's something bigger. It's something better than even what David gave to Israel. It's something bigger and better than what they had even conceived of, just a political kingdom. It's more monstrous. So let's, let's recap our passage for today. Jesus told the Pharisees and Herodians that they were to offer all of their life to God because they were made in his image. This is the vision of God for humanity our lives being offered back to him in love and appreciation. Then Jesus said to the Sadducees that they should live in light of the resurrection of the dead because this life is not all that there is. Then he tells the scribe that the whole point of obeying God is to love him with the whole of our being, the whole of our heart, our soul, our very muchness, and that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. So let's pause for just a moment and ask this question. Is this how you see life? Do you agree with Jesus? Do you agree with the perspective of Jesus? And even if you do agree, how are you doing at it? Giving God your very muchness, living in light of the resurrection, understanding I've been bought with a price, I've been made in the image of God, all of my life belongs to him. How are you doing living out of that perspective? This is what the normal Christian life is to look like. It's not determined for us. What's normal as a Christian is not determined by culture, by comparing ourselves to one another. It's not determined by the latest Christian book that comes out. It's not determined by whatever doctrinal fad or hobby horse is presently being presented in the world. The whole point of what God wants from us is this kind of life. And Jesus holds uncompromising, an uncompromising perspective on what it means to offer your life to God, to live in light of the resurrection. 
to love others and to love God with the whole of your being. It's not simply a matter of prayer life. It's a matter of, of surrender from the heart to the king of kings, the greater than David, and becoming participants in his kingdom. To get saved is not to pray a prayer. It's to lay down your life and to take up the life that God has created you for. That's what it means. Now, if you're like me, you hear that, and you're like, mm, I'm okay at it some of the time. Maybe you think of all the ways in which you're doing it wrong. You think of all the ways that your life might be compartmentalized or the ways in which you forget or I forget often to live with eternity in mind. Perhaps we hear of the way that we're supposed to love God with our heart, our soul, our mind, with all of us, with all of our strength, our very muchness, and you go, oh, man, I really suck at that. I'm not good at that. I've got good news for you. Jesus passed the inspection. The Lamb of God has no flaws. He has no blemishes. And because of that, he was qualified to take our failings and to pay for them in full upon the cross. If you put your trust in Jesus to save you, God sees the blood of the Lamb of God over the doorpost of your life. And you are spared the penalty of getting it wrong. And in addition to that, the heart that Jeremiah thought we should have, the heart that needed to be circumcised according to Moses, the heart that Ezekiel said was like stone, needed to be replaced with the heart of flesh, guess what? It's been given to us by the Holy Spirit. And we get to now live out of that heart, forgetting our failings, taking hold of our growth, and progressively growing into the likeness of Christ. So by the blood of the Lamb, our sins are forgiven, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we could repent of failings and grow in obedience to Jesus. And as we love God and follow Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, we grow up into spiritual maturity. We grow into the likeness of Christ. Amen? I'd like to invite the band to come back up and close us in worship. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the scriptures and the truth that they speak, which is eternal. Thank you for the way that you direct us to consider the whole of our lives before you. There is no compartmentalization. There's no place for us to um, separate out a life that we, we live away from your presence. Everything that we do and all that we are, we live in your face, before your presence, in your quorum, Dale. So God, by your grace, cover our weakness and by your spirit, Strengthen us that we might grow in the likeness of Jesus. And we ask this in the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen.